welcome to the TetraCast, RPG Sites Seemingly Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Vitale, and joining me today are George Foster. Hi, everyone. Adam Vitale. Hey, guys. And James Galizio. Hey, folks. So obviously, we went into this week uh, with expectations from a whole bunch of different platforms and uh, studio heads and publishers about a bunch of these, like, E3 substitute video streams and presentations and details on the PS4, uh, sorry, PS5. But of course, in light of all of the protests going on in America and the world right now, so many of those have been pushed back in support of Black Lives Matter, which I think, needless to say, we are all on board with. So those will come when they come. Some of them have already kind of been rescheduled, pushed back to dates around like next week or the week after, but a lot of them are more just kind of up in the air with you know us just waiting on details to see when those will come. But of course, we did have a big major video game release just a, we, a little over a week ago with Xenoblade Chronicles, and we've all been playing some other games in our backlogs and things like that. With a few other news bits we weren't expecting this week, uh, maybe not the heavy hitters we expected, but still some interesting things to talk about. At first, we're just gonna start with what we always do and just talk about kind of what we've been doing and some discussions that come out of the games we've been playing you know, the last seven days. So before going into some major sinks, sinking into some time into more Xenoblade discussion, uh, Adam, you've got listed here that you've uh, finished Color Splash, which you were kind of playing academically in preparation for the Origami King. I don't know if you had any final thoughts on Color Splash now that you've just wrapped it up and seen the credits. Yeah, right. So I, um, I played Color Splash like about maybe half of it for the podcast last week and I discussed you know my overall thoughts then so I don't want to repeat myself you know exactly but I, I managed to finish it um in this in the in the in the last week here and so like I, I believe the way I summed it up before was it's a decent maybe even good adventure game that's stapled with a terrible like absolutely terribly designed battle system and kind of com and supporting systems to the battle system that I just don't think really make much sense at all as well as it has other issues that it kind of carries over from the previous release sticker star that I don't think it necessarily fixes it more just sort of either sidesteps it or puts a band-aid on it but doesn't it? It's it's a, these are systems that just didn't really make a lot of sense, and how they're and how they're implemented into the game. So it's I come away from Color Splash, which this the Color Splash is the fifth Paper Mario game that released on Wii U in 2016. I just came to it late, so just to give a how do I where, where do I want to start with this? So how about how about do I start you, with a Do you dislike it as much as you dislike Sticker Star? No. Okay, so let me just start uh touch on the main thing that annoys me that was a huge issue in Sticker Star where here it's not really an issue but it's almost like the opposite where it's almost just feels trivial like completely pointless instead. So in Sticker Star, that's the 3DS game that came out in 2012, so 8 years old now already, and in Sticker Star I talked about this last week, so I don't want to repeat myself too thoroughly here, but your attacks are basically stickers that you have in your sticker book, and each jump you do and each hammer swing, swing you do, it consumes a sticker. And stickers take up space in your book, so you can't hold on to like 99 of them or whatever. 
um, because you can only hold so many in your book. And then the stronger the sticker is, the more space it takes. And in Sticker Star, there were these special types of stickers that were actually called things. And that's what they're called. They're called things, capital T things. And these take up a lot of space in your book. And what, what would happen is, as you're playing through the game, you would run in across these things and you could put them in your book, but they took up a lot of space. But the problem was you had no idea, no indication of which ones were useful and which ones were kind of pointless. And the last thing you wanted to do was just kind of pick one up, put it in your book and have it taking up like a page of space and you don't do anything with it. So you kind of run across all these things and there's, you know, dozens of them in the game and you're just sort of thinking to yourself, do I pick this one up and hope I need it? Or do I just leave it where it is and hope I don't need it? You have no idea. And then, uh, and you can't pick up all of them feasibly because then you're just having no, you'll have no room for any other stickers. And then what would happen is you run into a boss fight and during the boss fight, how basically every boss was designed was you would have to have a specific thing that would basically turn the boss from like a five-star difficulty to a manageable two-star difficulty sort of deal. Uh, the stars aren't actually in the game. I just made that up as my way to rank them. But you would get these things, you would fight the boss, and basically after like three or four or five turns against the boss, your little partner sticker guy would tell you like a clue, like if only you had this, and then you could use it and basically drastically lower the boss's you know, capabilities. So where, where you're going with this, hopefully, is that Color Splash is not as tedious, right? Please tell me that. Well, here's the thing. It is. That is true. Well, let me just finish off my thought there. So what would happen is you would get your clue about what thing you need. If you had it, you could just use it. And like you, you, just, you were lucky. You picked the right one to keep. If you didn't have the thing you needed, you could still defeat these bosses without it. But you, what would end up happening is it would take a lot longer and you'd basically waste a lot more stickers doing it because you basically are fighting with a handicap or a handicap against you because you don't have the right thing. So what you literally have to do is flee the boss fight, which the game allows you to do, and then go back to wherever that thing was, if you remember where it was, and pick it up, put it in your sticker, then go back and fight the boss. And it was just, it was just a really tedious, stupid design. So what Color Splash does is it still has these sorts of bosses, that still require a specific thing to make them manageable. Although you don't need, actually, I think in some cases you do need them. But in Color Splash, there are a few changes. First, first of all, it's a card deck instead of a sticker book, and each card takes up the same amount of room. So a thing doesn't take up any more space than a mushroom. So that's slightly better. That's immediately um, better, yeah. Yeah, but. So it's not really tedious in this case, but it almost just kind of keeps the same system, but makes it completely trivial as to almost be pointless. So what what there is now is there's an NPC in the main city area that if you talk to him, he'll basically tell you, oh, I think you need this thing soon. And he'll he'll just tell you, you need this item that you can pick up. And I'll tell you, and also he also tells you where to where to pick it up. So like if it's a place you've already been, like go back to the train station and pick up the blah, blah, blah. You can do Oh, I guess I'll do that because I guess I need it. And then you play the game a little bit further. You might run into a boss or maybe not a boss, but like a uh, like a puzzle where you need that thing. It's like, oh, I guess I have the thing because that guy told me I had it or I needed it. And now I have it. And then I used it. And there we go. And that's it. So it's it kind of just it's no longer tedious, but. 
it, it's just kind of pointless to have this guy just tell you, you need to pick this up. Okay, I'll pick it up. And oh, I need it. And then it's just like, that's not interesting. You're not solving anything. You're just basically someone's just telling you do this and you do it. So it just, it's yeah, like, it's what's the point? It's a game at that point. Yeah. So there are other parts to this game that I think are pretty decent with the puzzly adventure aspects, like um, going through some of the some of the uh, some of the levels. There's some platforming. There's some puzzle elements in terms of like where you need to go and when and how. Um, so that sort of thing. Those sort of the things I think the game does pretty well. But the battle system is still just kind of awkward with its consumable uses. The thing system just kind of feels trivial and pointless. I talked last time about some of these weird uh, issues that came up with the game. I won't repeat them here, but I actually thought of a few more that um, I didn't mention last time. So one thing that you do in this game is that when you go through a level, and the levels are based on stages, it's almost like a, a Mario, Super Mario Bros. 3 type map where you have little dots on the world map that you go into that are stages. And in each stage, there's lots of splotches on the map that you fix with paint. That's kind of the game's theme. And you get bonuses for fixing all these splotches, basically going through the map and finding them all. And not all of them are like so immediately obvious where they are, so you kind of have to search them out and seek for them and seek them out. And it'll actually tell you on each level, like you have filled in 80% or 90% or 100% of the splotches. And it's like, oh, okay. So that's kind of a, a gamey, collectible, you know, task sort of thing you do. And it's fine. Star Ocean but, freestyle. Yeah, it's a, it's a bar you fill, you know, whatever. But um, one thing that can happen is that on the world map, a shy guy who's, I forget his name, like bandit guy or something, he can come and randomly, he comes in a random, random times at a random spot and he can start, sucking the paint out of a level basically undoing your progress and you can go back you you can, if you're fast enough like if you're close enough to him on the map you can stop him but it's random so sometimes and this happened to me once he appears on the other side of the map than where you are at and it takes a while to have your little character icon traverse the little paths on the map to get to him where it's like literally impossible to get to him before he finishes and what that effectively means is like oh i've undone this level for you you have to redo it and there's nothing you can do about it. It's just luck of the draw where he shows up. And that did happen to me once where I had to redo a level because of that. And, you know, in the end, it's only like, oh, it's like an additional 15 minutes of gameplay or whatever that I had to do. But it's still just kind of like, really? I have to redo this level now just because of that? Are there Why? any wrinkles like in terms of you do the level, but now the anything's different or stronger or more difficult? Or is it no, literally just do what you did? It depends if there was like any storyline in the level before. That's you don't have to redo that. Um, but if it, but just basically going exploring through, you still have to explore through like all the rooms and get all the splotches because all of it's basically been reset. So like it's not like doing the all the storyline stuff again because that already happened. But you, the levels in this game you can replay, so um, you can always enter a level again no matter what. But the fact that you kind of basically just have to start from scratch again, it's just that's just. A small annoying thing like why do i have to do this can you just leave it uh, undone if you're done with it you, you can but it's just it just kind of feels really annoying it's like aha, i completed this and now i have to recomplete it so it's just a small tedious thing another thing that happens is in throughout the game kamek who is like the flying witch or wizard koopa, koopa. guy yeah um he can come in any battle like any battle randomly and 
give you a handicap. And sometimes it's uh, making it so you can't see what your cards are. So you're basically playing with a blind deck. It's the same cards, but that you're blind. And sometimes he reduces your card deck to six and is like, hopefully you have the right six cards you need to win. And there were a few cases where he came like in a battle. Like, for example, I was fighting um, a battle with enemies that had spikes on their head. And then, or no, it wasn't that. It was, uh, they were stacked enemies. And I mean, I have to explain what a stacked enemy is. So stacked enemies are enemies that it doesn't matter how much damage you do. It just matters on how many times you hit them because you're basically peeling them apart. Sorry, this is part all part of the game aesthetic, and so <laughs> it's. A, I, know, no, I mean, I know what you mean. It's like like a pokey or something like that. I assume is what you mean. Yeah, kind of like that. Um, so like these enemies, they have they're like a ten paper stack. So you have to hit them ten times to defeat them. So it doesn't matter if you jump on them with ten mini jumps or ten super jumps. It, it's the same to them. It's kind of the mechanic. Um, some enemies you want to do strong attacks on. Some enemies you want to do like a bunch of attacks on, depending on what it is. And so, like, I was fighting these stacked enemies, and Koopa came, and then, like, I had the cards I had left were, like, jump cards that weren't really good against them. So I ended up wasting the six cards he gave me, and then you go into, like, this roulette rope mode, or you're kind of, like, in a desperation mode. Like, you're out of cards, and now you have to basically buy cards from a roulette and try to win. And it's just like, well, if, if Magic Koopa didn't come, Kamek, I would have been totally fine. But now that since I was limited, I kind of have to waste my time in this battle with these roulette and try to get the cards I need and fight these enemies. And it took like, you know, three times or four times or five times longer than a normal battle. And it's just kind of like, this, this is so tedious, so random. It is completely random. I've read online about people who run into even worse situations than that with Kamek. And these sort of random draw things is just kind of like, sometimes they're not going to work. They're not going to work in your favor, but I still feel like it's just making it way more tedious than it needs to be. Like it doesn't matter how much I'm, preparation I'm, you do, or what you or, or how general, you are. We've had talks about like randomness in in the context of like Fire Emblem, you know, hit chance, or like even another topic we don't think we've talked about here is like laws in Final Fantasy Tactics Advance. I think sometimes if you're given something that is an inconvenience, so like oh darn, I missed on an eighty percent chance. Oh darn, in this battle I can't use swords or whatever. Those can be fun to work around, but something about the implementation here just sounds absolutely unfun. I'm trying to think of like what what is that line that well, you cross? For example, where in a random Lum. inconvenience is made like no longer enjoyable. Well, like for example, in Fire Emblem, you can you can work those percentages in your favor, like or if you know what they are, you can kind of try your best to do your best with them in terms of like, oh, this enemy has a killing edge sword. So I'm going to try to take an enemy that or a character who is using a spear and has high luck against them to try to basically mitigate it as much as possible, or maybe more simply just, you know, the, the, the weapon triangle, just kind of work with that. And you're basically going to try to lean things in your favor. Whereas in this, these random elements I've talked about for color splash are just completely random. You have no control over and you can't work it in your favor at all. So there's no way to tip the scales at all and the thing is is like all these the, both of the, both the examples i gave they only like they're, they're not like game breaking it's just that they can hand up, happen at any time and set you back at basically 15 minutes or, or whatever at any time just kind of wasting time and just it just it's just kind of annoying so the fact that it's like random like when they happen to like you might be in the middle of doing something else it's just kind of it's not really it's just not fun so so all stated it's <laughs> 
since you've had, I guess, do you feel any different going into the Origami King, which is, you know, under two months away? Or is it kind of the still like cautious optimism, maybe it'll be better? Well, one thing I actually looked into a little bit more closely is I looked at the credits for these for these Paper Mario games. And so the I won't get into the names here, but basically the first three games generally had the same director and same designers. That's Paper Mario, Paper Mario, Thousand Year Door, and Super Paper Mario. Like all those three games had basically the same core lead staff, art design, battle design, and director. And then going into Sticker Star and then through to Color Splash, those all changed. So kind of perhaps this is just seeing what I want to see, but kind of with my experience of the games and looking at that now, I'm like, oh, that makes sense, you know, because the design is very yeah, like, different. Oh, that checks out. Yeah, exactly. So I'm keen to see what that is for the new game. Like, you know, obviously like Super Paper Mario itself is like, what, 12 years old now or 13 years old, um, I think, 2007 or so. Um, so like those, 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 uh, the director and the designers there may not even be at the industry anymore or moved into different positions. I don't, I don't even know, but like, I'm keen to see if it's going to be the same key staff for Origami King as the previous games, or if they changed it up a bit and maybe that'll give me an indication on what it's like, but yeah. I don't think that I've seen anything in the trailers that indicates some of these elements are still in, like consumable attacks or things or whatever. But we'll see. That comes out next month, doesn't it? It's yeah, like mid July. Jeez, that's fast. That's like that that's the best sort of announcement in my eye. Just like, oh yeah, here's this game we've all been wanting. And it comes out like really soon. Though I'm not sure exactly how many people were clamoring for a new Paper Mario after the last two were uh contentious to say the least very true this is my <clears throat> chance to plug bug fables we should play bug fables do it it's kind of funny you reviewed bug fables for pc if, if and... it's a good enough paper mario for arlo it's a good enough paper mario for you but yeah like you reviewed bug fables for pc late like early may or something like that and yeah. but the game was coming out for consoles in late May, and then like a week or two after you posted your review was the the embargo for the console versions, and then it was kind of funny seeing all these console reviews come out shortly after yours, and people like our like our friends at RPG Gamer or RP Gamer, and you really liked it, and I have already seen a bit of other praise for the game, but then all the console version reviews came out, and like our friends at RPG Fan and RP Gamer and other outlets as well. There's been plenty of praise for those games. So it's like, huh, maybe Brian was onto something here. Uh, it seems like it's definitely something worth checking out. Well, I only really played it because the word of mouth, like on the Steam reviews or whatever, was good as well. So just going down the line, another link on the chain. So I guess we'll look forward to Origami King in July. Depending on how crazy the midsummer be ends up being, uh, it's, it's on my radar, but I don't know if I'm excited to like pick it up day one. I still need I to play see, yeah. the other Paper Marios. I do think the first two are like legitimately good. <laughs> so, and as RPGs, not just Mario games. Has George or James played any of them? No, I, it's one of them I was always meant to play. Um, but I only really noticed it because obviously I'm the baby. 
Super Paper Mario when that came out. That was my first indication of the series, and that wasn't really, you know, that wasn't really Paper Mario. So I've just never, never gone back. And I should play this though. I think Origami Cave. I think it'll be fun, but we'll see. So the rest of the list on our games we've been playing is all Xenoblade related. But before going into more definitive edition stuff, uh, James, you've got listed Xenoblade Chronicles Cross, and I know you've been on Twitter kind of like glowing about this game. So uh, I think you finished, but I'm not certain. What are your What are your final or finishing thoughts on? your playthrough of Xenoblade Chronicles Cross? Well, I finished the main story, which, um, as I think we've made clear, like uh, Xenoblade Cross is um, very much a game that's <clears throat> focused on the side stories, the side content, all that stuff. The main story is kind of, wouldn't say it's an afterthought, but really it's just meant to be supplemented by the side stories dealing with... Um, like the separate alien races and everything going on on Mira and whatnot. Um, I have to say, I really am surprised I ended up enjoying Xenoblade Cross as much as I did, because I had originally skipped it when it came out, because I'd heard how the game story was disappointing, and I just never ended up giving it a shot. But I do wonder if I would have enjoyed it as much if I had played it at launch, because... The thing that really resonated with me as I've been playing this is that, um, and I think I mentioned this before, uh, when I played Xenoblade Chronicles 2, I was actually really disappointed in the world and level design and how it felt a bit more restrictive than the first game. And I'm sure that's like a common complaint. Everyone likes to clown on about the fueled skills as they should. Um, and it's really a nine day difference. <clears throat> Cross, even more so than the first game, is like a true open world. It's amazing just the scope and scale of everything and again i'm i know that adam's probably talked well definitely has talked about this on the podcast before but it really can't be overstated just how impressive the scope of the game world is especially considering that the game was originally on the wii u the subject matter in the game and the way that some of the side stories are told are a lot more mature than in the ever Xenoblade games, and I can see exactly what he means. And um, another <clears throat> kind of uh, illusion people made is that the side stories and the side quests and how they deal with the various alien races and almost makes the game feel like anime Star Trek at the best of times. And it's just fascinating how these side quest chains evolve and how your choices have a, maybe not an impact on how these um, side quest chains continue but how they eventually end up and it's just fascinating stuff this sounds like a game that i know i would absolutely love but uh having um put so much time into the the uh definitive edition this week i'll probably i probably want to play cross before the end of the year but it all depends on how the year shakes out i don't want to talk too much about the definitive edition now just because uh we're going to be going into it later but when i've been playing it one general feeling that I've had that I found that I just the type of game that resonates with me, this is going to sound a little blunt, but I kind of like games that just shut up and just let me play for a bit. Um, and I hate to keep making this comparison, but it's just two JRPGs that I played pretty much back to back and they're so different in how they tackle their design of their games. Final Fantasy VII Remake and then Xenoblade. So Final Fantasy VII Remake kind of strings you along this linear story like on a on a 
you know, on a, on a thread of floss. Like you basically just go from beat to beat to beat. And you have that wonderful combat system there to kind of bolster the experience, but you don't really ever have much of any time where the game just kind of just shuts up and lets you toy around with it. It doesn't ever give you like a toolbox or like your pails of sand and then a sandbox to go build or do whatever you want in. It, it kind of is more of a, uh, here, we want you to do this, so you better do this. It has a few, like chapter 14 is the closest is that it gets to uh, to ever feeling like, a big open-ended do what you want here entertain yourself and that's kind of what i find that when i'm playing xenoblade de i appreciate where like you're on the bionis leg or you're in era c or you're on valak mountain and it's just kind of like yeah you've got a cutscene waiting for you at the end but on the way there you do what you want um and the way you describe xenoblade cross where it's not the the narrative is there to kind of give enough to, to supply the premise but it's there's it's not in the driver's seat driving you to the to a finish line so I basically, what I'm getting at is I bet I would love this game. I just got to find the time to get to it. Yeah. And it's been fascinating because um, it's you kind of see like the train of uh, people starting to play it. Cause um, I started playing cross because of um, what Adam was saying about it on, on here, like back in March. And um, now uh, Colin started playing and he's gotten a mutual friend of ours to start playing it. And it seems like uh, <laughs> at least um around the uh, people I follow on Twitter and mutuals and whatnot, they're definitely all starting to give it a bit more of a shot, which is good to see, even if it's a few years late to the party, to say the least. I should maybe also mention that when we do our, our, our fun little birthday tweets on our Twitter page for Xenoblade cross, like whenever we tweet about like, whether it's, it's uh, it's us, you know, anniversary or it's Japanese one, which are on different dates. Like w- there are quite a bit of, glowing comments about it like people calling it the best one or 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 whatever um obviously for any game there's a just there's a, a range of comments but like it we've done this for years now and every time we do cross there's plenty of positive ones so it's like huh, a lot of people really like this game and when it first came out like there were some really positive reviews on it like ours from josh uh he was quite positive on it and has been from the beginning but i think it just it was just people went into it with expectations is going to be like the first game, which it's not really, it's, you know, the same skeleton of like combat is, is similar in ways, but like, like the overall structure of the game is very different. Um, And I think this, those expectations that people thought it was going to be more of the same might've soured some people, but as time has gone on and people now going into the game with this expectation that it's a bit different in how it's structured, maybe people a little bit more open-minded and that maybe that makes that barrier a little bit easier to, to, to surmount just rather than going into it, expecting more of the same. Yeah. I actually went to a PAX panel in like 2015, I believe that was all about uh, Xenoblade cross. And I don't remember the details, but I remember like coming out of that panel cause they showed like the character creation and, uh, how it was like a mute protagonist, blank slate, whatever. And then the art style was obviously a big departure from Xenoblade, um, from anything Monolith's done, really. And it just, I was turned off by it. And then I never really, uh, kind of, I never, I kind of looked away and never looked back. Like, it's not like I hated what I saw. I was just no longer interested. But now we're at this place where, like, it, there's almost a bit of mystique to it because it is kind of like, this is a bit poetic, but it's shackled to the Wii U. 
like we've seen uh Tokyo Mirage Sessions get a port. Uh obviously Xenoblade wasn't on the Wii U, but it got a, a modern uh, update now on the on the Switch. We've seen uh like Wonderful 101 now is on every other system. So what's left on the Wii U like Xenoblade Cross and Color Splash. So what is this like a Wii U like uh retrospective is what this podcast is. And Mario is so far. 3D World as well. And oh yeah, 3D World. World. Oh, okay, maybe there that are a good few well. more than I thought. Yeah. Well, I guess well, there's those rumors about those Mario um, remasters, so we'll see. I'm sure Pikmin 3 will be ported. It won't be... Uh, it, it's definitely one of those games. Um, I mentioned this before, but I do think that um, it is going to be interesting if Xenoblade Cross gets a port, how they deal with Frontier Nav. Because while it was possible to play using a game, the uh, Pro Controller on the Wii U, I'm pretty sure you still had to use the Wii U gamepad to use Frontier Nav. And while you could momentarily put the uh, main screen on the gamepad and like switch back and forth that way, it definitely wasn't an elegant solution. And again, it's really hard to emphasize this without kind of having the, um, un- like ha- without actually playing the game, but you use Frontier Nav a lot. It's how you fast travel. It's how you um, figure out where you want to go next because each of the nodes on Frontier Nav is like color coded to let you know like how difficult the enemies are in each region. The icon that is in the uh, Frontier Nav node actually lets you know what you need to do to kind of um, chart each region on Frontier Nav. So it can either be, oh, you chart this by doing a quest or an affinity mission or by killing a tyrant or by find or by finding this, um, I'm not sure what it's called. Is it treasure points? I'm not sure. But you know what I mean, um, Adam. Collection points, uh, I think they're called? Yeah, I think so. But anyways, it's just, it's actually a very integral part of the experience. And I don't know how how it would work if you had to constantly, like, um, go into wait a for or something. Yeah. I would argue that the, the two-screen experience for Xenoblade Chronicles Cross is more integral to that than like the, du- the dual screen experiences to something like Etrian Odyssey. Because there are plenty of dungeon crawlers that are single screen. And yeah, Etrian Odyssey goes a little bit further in like the map making. But I think you could, it's, I think it's more easy, more easy to imagine an Etrian Odyssey game like reshaping itself for Switch or whatever than Xenoblade would be. To cross, I mean, because that Frontier Nav. That second screen, you do so much with it. Though I don't, it, it would be very weird if it just kept as it is. So it's hard to say what what they might do if they port it. Yeah, but uh, and the other thing is that um, I do wonder if it does get ported to Switch, what the resolution situation would be like. Because and again, I, I was cheating because I was emulating it, but it's actually really impressive how good Xenoblade Cross looks. And I'm definitely of the opinion that maybe not from like a behind, like under the hood standpoint, but like just looking at it, I feel like Xenoblade Cross for the most part looks much better than Xenoblade 2. So it's, I do wonder exactly what the resolution would be if it ended up on Switch. Um, Because like my one complaint with Xenoblade Definitive Edition so far is that the overall presentation is very blurry. And I don't necessarily think it needed to be that blurry because while there are redone assets every now and then, it's like 
I think I mentioned this last week. Once I actually got to playing Definitive Edition, I was surprised how much wasn't quite changed. And I don't know, it just seems very weird that the resolution is so low on that when the original game on the Wii was like 480p or something like that. And it's like, well, the Switch is much stronger than that. Even with the upgrades, you'd think they'd be able to get like, I don't know, 900p in dock mode. I didn't have, in my playthrough of Xenoblade, which I guess we're going to start to kind of cross-pollinate here. Um, so I've been playing that pretty much all week. Obviously, it's a massive game, and it had just come out by our podcast last week. Um, I didn't really have much in the way of personal grievances with the uh, performance until like near the very end of the game where you go into some areas that have like a whole bunch going on, and then it really started to chug in turn. Like the, the frame rate had been like constant. Uh I don't know if it was 30 or sitting just below that, but it, was, it wasn't it was enough to be distracting until like the last 15% of the game and some of the environments there. I guess my, yeah, it is kind of foggy or blurry, but I guess my expectations are scalable. I'm like, yeah, it's a Switch game. What are you going to get? I guess it's kind of the, that's the point I'm at in the Switch's life where you talk about, um, for instance, the Outer Worlds came out on Switch, which George might want to talk about a little bit. And it's got like some big resolution problems or frame rate. But yeah. at this point, I'm just, I'm, I'm just kind of like, uh, it comes with the territory. If it's a Switch game, that's how it is. Maybe that's like defeatist, but you tell me a Switch game is running below 720p, and I'm like, yeah, that sounds about right. Like, that's just kind of where yeah. I'm at. There's not a port I've seen that's like, well, the only one I can think of, the, the best port I've seen is Dragon Ball Fighters. That was, that's basically a flawless uh, Switch over. Hey, Switch over. But... Uh, apparently, apparently, Alien Isolation was a really good port. Really? Well, that's yeah. Quite, quite like a detailed I... game as well. And apparently the Borderlands games are pretty good too. Those just came out. Huh. I mean, when I when I hear people say they're pretty good, like I'm assuming that they're not gonna look as good as the PC version, obviously, but I guess they just make they make the best of what they have. For me, we'll go this will sort of tie into the outer worlds, which I'll uh, briefly discuss. It the frame rate is more important because if you're if you're playing a game on Switch, then you like a port you're guaranteed that's just not going to look as good as like definitely not the pcs and almost definitely not the consoles either so you just want it to be stable and with the outer worlds it, it mostly is uh, i didn't really see any massive dips in frame rate besides bigger combat encounters it just it looks quite poor i'm sure twitter's been a buzz with um comparisons and it's just yeah it's not very great but it's still a fantastic game so i, I still enjoyed playing it I guess just to wrap up, just to make sure we're not jumping the gun, did you have any other final thoughts on Xenoblade Cross? Like, how much did you have left to do in the game now that you finished the story? I don't know if you've got, like, post-game optional super stuff or whatever. Um, so when I finished the main story, I had about 80 hours logged, and my Frontier well, my frontier Nav um, completion rate was at around 50%. So I still have a bunch that I can oh, do. Oh, wow. I did a ton of side quests, but I didn't do all of them. I did enough to feel like I got the general gist of um, how most of them work out. And like, it's actually fascinating. I think you actually talked about this back in March, Adam, but like most of the alien races in the game, you won't actually meet unless you explicitly go out of your way to do their side quests. It's kind of really interesting. <laughs> Those yeah, are like... I mean, like, you might do one side quest that basically introduces the uh, the the prone or or something. I don't know. Yeah. 
I, I forget I forget the names. There's the prone, there's the shapeshifter ones, but and other names I, I forget the names, but there's that one there's this one base of aliens that like is in uh, Oblivia somewhere. And like you won't get there unless you do a quest that basically unlocks it. And then there's a bunch more quests there for those guys. So yeah, it's yeah. Wait, there's quests there too? Because I th- I saw them move into the city. I thought that's where their quests would be. No, there's more quests that you can get from the from their home base in Oblivia. Yeah. Amazing. <clears throat> how do the how do a... quests uh, not not in terms of of scope or design because that that definitely seems like the winner would be cross, but. Like meanwhile, Xenoblade DE has like 450 mostly banal, you know, fetch quests. Like, d- does it have like are the number of quests in Cross like still like in the 100s? Like, yes, yes. Jeez. I don't know if it necessarily has the same amount of quests because it's weird. Because Cross has a distinction between types of quests. So you have the basic missions, which are the ones that you can just grab from the terminal. And most of those are just kind of throwaway. You can get items, you can get credits, you can get experience. A few of those help you figure out where to go looking for normal missions, which are story-focused side quests. And I say story-focused, but some of them have more of an emphasis on story. Some of them are larger, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have the affinity missions, which are essentially story missions in of themselves with the scope but they're focused on a specific side character and you get more about their backstories and whatnot. And so there's tons of like basic missions and there's tons of normal missions. I don't know how many affinity missions are. I want to say at least 50, something like that. Well, maybe around 50, because I think you get three affinity missions per playable character. Yeah, there's 18 playable characters and I think they get like two or three each. So 50 sounds about right. 50 to 60. And those are like longer missions. And then like normal missions themselves are also like, I'd say the normal missions, what you do in them isn't necessarily all that different from what you do in side quests in Xenoblade 1. But the framing around them is a lot better because you do actually get quote unquote cutscenes. Not well, there's two types of cutscenes in this game. Like Ones where they're just standing around and you see like some movement that way. And then there's ones that are actually voiced and whatnot, obviously. But um, in Xenoblade 1, you don't really get that many scenes when you're doing side quests. But in Cross, even like the normal missions, you do see um, <clears throat> stuff like that. There's And there's some fun like narratives to them too. Like there's this um, one where you're having to solve a case of murders that they've been like a, a tr- well, they've been done against like uh, Manon, and it's dark, but it's also like it. That's probably one of the longer normal missions in the game because there's a ton that you have to do, and you basically end up going to a couple of the different areas on the map as you're doing things. And then there's also, I think I mentioned last week that one of the things I liked is that there's sometimes these missions where stuff that you hear on the map with through the yellow kind of speech bubbles can actually help you in those missions and give you the option to actually save people that would normally die. And not to say uh, anything more than that, but this specific mission was one of those. And it's really um, fascinating how often the game does that. I am a defender of Xenoblade 1's side quest, even if 
at a surface level, they are kind of the most basic as design requests imaginable. It almost goes like the, um, this is going to maybe sound like a, a weird comparison, but it almost goes like the Kaseki route where a lot of what you get out of them is in just in terms of how variable the NPC dialogue becomes. Because obviously all of the quests in that game kind of tie into this game's affinity system. This is the definitive edition um, the, the, or the original game where some of the quests later in the in the back half of the game do start to chain together a little bit. It's not anything to write home about, and they're not really tied to any characters in your party, like like the like the eighteen characters you mentioned for Cross. But you, you start to see how things are chaining together, and how they get how the scope does kind of increase, like with the high Antia like secret emblem rooms or the 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 history of the giants on Bionis or things like that. But what I what I actually find, and I kind of mentioned this, that now that I'm a more patient person and I'm not just skipping through all the dialogue, is like when you complete a quest and then you talk to the people who that quest would have affected and they have like new things to say about it. For instance, uh, you, you move one of the uh, defense soldiers from Colony 9 over into Colony 6. And this guy is kind of like uh, a low confidence, uh, kind of a bum almost, where he, he almost... Does, he doesn't value his life. He doesn't know. He has that like gripping and ennui. Is that what you call it? Where he doesn't know like what the point of everything is. But then like new fresh start or whatever. He goes into colony six. You 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 kind of help train him in terms of like fighting monsters. Like so the quest still doesn't go beyond kill 10 of these things. Kill one of these things. But then you go back to him and he's like instead of just sitting on his like on the ground like dejected. He's like up and about and he's like throwing air punches or whatever. He's like he's all confident. And then you can go to like the Fallen Arm, which is a city on the other side of the world map, and talk to one of the ex-defense soldiers there. And he's like, oh, you know Nick? He and I used to be friends. Oh, he's doing much better now. I hear, you know, that's good to hear. And like, oh, okay. Like, so these two characters knew each other at one point. Or there's another side quest where one of the Hyantia is researching on Valak Mountain, the giants, I believe. Or it might actually be the history of the Hyantia who used to live on the mountain. And they're like, well, the Hyantia don't live there anymore because it's too cold. But maybe it wasn't always that way if the if the Bionis had lived somewhere else. And then you go there after the quest, and one of the Nopon who lives there is like, oh, do you know Talia? She she came by here earlier, and she was you know conducting research, and we talked. So that's kind of where the quests in Xenoblade One I'm actually really starting to kind of enjoy, just to see like, yeah, these people are there. They have their own lives and their own interests, and they do interact, and these characters. Even even if it's only in the extent that their dialogue changes slightly, they're not just sitting down like, I exist, stand by this camp and give you one line of dialogue and that's my purpose in this game. They actually do allow them to like shift and change. And if you do this quest, they'll, they will actually like reflect on that. So I'm still a defender of the quest in Xenoblade 1. There's also like the whole quest chain in Colony 9 around Emmy Leader. And that can actually yeah, turn out a, a few one. different ways. And basically, it's all about the defense forces again. So, and then, um, like a lot of a lot of the Hyantia that you meet uh, in Alchemoth that later in the game are in different parts of the world. Like, if you have that attachment to that character, you know who they are or what they were doing before, and you say like, "Oh, now this person is uh, in the frontier village, and they're doing this," or "Or hey, some of them moved to Colony Six or whatever." Um, and then they meet some of the other characters you met from another place. It's, I can see if you're skipping through all the dialogue, since none of the cutscenes are voiced or whatever, you might not have the attachment and all you ever see is, oh, gee, all these quests ever asked me to do is collect doodads and fight things. But 
I think there's a little bit more to them. It might be only like this wouldn't actually change anything, but it would just be kind of an organizational thing. I wonder if people would have taken to them better if all the quests that literally are generic and just given to you just by like nameless NPCs, the ones that literally just are called like monster hunt or challenge or search quest. If those had kind of been like branched off into their own thing and they weren't called quests, if those were called just like tasks or even well, if that's actually like what that's, that's pretty much what uh, Xenoblade Chronicles Cross does. Those sorts of quests you get from the terminal and are given a different name. So yeah, like if those did. quests that literally have nothing going for them other than do this thing, get a thing. If those were like put into the menu, like imagine the Collectopedia page, you pull it up for Balak Mountain or whatever, and then you go to the second sub page of it and it says like, here are the things you can do here, fight this, find this, do this. Like if, I wonder if that would be more palatable. It wouldn't actually literally change anything. No, but I just think that framing would have been a, a bit more like less obscene and it wouldn't cross, it wouldn't like contaminate all the quests that actually do have something going on for them. Uh, I don't know. It's one of those things where I think the presentation is just as important as the like actual substance. Well, I haven't got much further, like in terms of time. Like I'm only I'm I'm about seven hours into the game now, but how much I'm enjoying it and what has happened has definitely gone up by quite a lot. So, I we we talked about this before. I can probably discuss Fiora's death. That whole yep. scene was just incredible like that made me want to keep playing the game more than anything else because the combat I'm, I'm enjoying but like i said last podcast when i know that the game is so long it kind of puts me off like knowing that there's still like 50 60 hours is always kind of like oh no i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to sacrifice a few weekends for this one but that yeah. scene made me go you know what oh, i want to see this through um we, we were talking on the chat actually and i think james mentioned it on twitter but I accidentally got spoiled by Smash Bros as well uh, in the <laughs> identity of um, Metal Face. Like, yeah. can I talk about that? Is that okay? Uh, that's not. a bit haven't even encountered it yet. <laughs> uh, no, I, w I won't mention it, but yeah. So Sm Smash just doesn't care if I've played Xenoblade or not. Uh, and then since then, I am now looking for Juju, uh, Charlotte's sister, uh, brother. And uh, I think the thing that impressed me the most besides... The characterization is the scope. So I've, I've, th this isn't like a, a hot take or anything. This is one of the things that people relate to Xenoblade all the time. But when I first got to that, to the 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 Gar Plains, isn't it? When I got yeah, there, it's a location on the yeah, Bionic I was just, flag, I yeah. Was just yeah, like I, I was just amazed. I was like, how the how the heck is the Switch like managing this? And th this is going to be a bit of a tangent, but. One of my problems with Final Fantasy VII Remake, and I get why they've done it, because well, I already it's broke, not that, I already broke not this story, seal, but... so go ahead. Yeah, like, um, the fact that there's no big area to roam around, like, yeah, you do have explorable areas, like the towns in certain chapters, but the fact that there's not a big, okay, go out into the wilderness and there's, like, loads of monsters, loads of quests, the fact that that's not there is kind of disappointing. So to get that in Xenoblade is, is really cool. Um, and it's just like, it, it feels like a fully realized world. Like in a way I haven't seen in a game in a really long time. So yeah, I didn't I'm state it really so clearly before, but I, I just love that in that section, it's like, yeah, the refugee camp here is, you know, it's down here at the Southeast end of the map. 
do whatever you want to get there. And it's just like, okay, you, where do I want to go? And you, you can, you, you see like the giant level 80 monster roaming around. You can, you know, you see all the, uh, yes. you know, the vistas or whatever, and you can just kind of go anywhere. And obviously you're going to be punished if you like try to take on stuff that's way stronger than you Where in the remake. It's not just purely about size or how how small the corridors are. It's more, I think, the design behind it. Where in Remake, it's like you're in Chapter 14 or whatever, and it's like, go here to go up to the plate and continue the story. If you don't want to do that, we've got this like limited set of things you can do before then in terms of these side quests. But that's kind of it. There's no wanderlust. There's no like emergent do-what-you-want. It's just kind of like do these, this this list of quests they're mm, optional completely here they are where xenoblade really kind of and some people might more want that more driven narrative i just happen not to be one of those people i i just i'm glad that you felt the same way reaching the guar plane that i did i don't know it makes me feel like it gives me like okay the the how much that excited me is not is something that i guess is common a commonality amongst a bunch of us and what we're looking for in rpgs and things like that yeah completely like i i to to say i did really like final fantasy 7 remakes focus on the story i think especially for part one that is important to set it up but i kind of can't wait to see if they can do something like this like because it's just really cool it's cool to just roam around and see all these monsters and like even if you're not necessarily doing anything like oh, i spent maybe half an hour just doing some battles which I, i'm still not totally used to it still um I, I didn't really want to mention it yet because i'm gonna look like i'm just jumping between games but i also bought xenoblade chronicles 2 uh in the past week just because i i've always i've always wanted this is to now, this is the, now a xenoblade podcast yeah this is now the xenoblade podcast another reason why i was like oh hold off till i've played it more um and i've played a couple of hours into that as well uh and yeah i think i might be kind of kind of a fan of the series now because when i get home it's all i want to play um I, i'm not far enough again i'm not far enough in either of them to be like yeah these are these are amazing because i could get 10 hours in and be like well this is one off very fast but they've just got this magic to them and like this these worlds i just really really want to be in and explore and I, I've been I've played so many games over the past couple of years and I haven't really found that sort of feeling again in a game until Xenoblade. So yeah, very this, positive. This might sound a little dumb and it might not be clear what, what, what is meant right away, but one thing that Adam said like over the last couple of weeks, and again, he might have been referring to Final Fantasy VII Remake a bit, he's like, sometimes games don't have enough game to them, like in quotes. Like areas where nothing is carrying the player except what the player like input and output what is the player expected to do and what does the player get for doing it and and let me let me jump in adam if i'm ever like misinterpreting you but xenoblade is the sort of game where it absolutely does not have that problem where it's just kind of like when you, let's say you're on the the um the guard plane or the bionis leg you've got you know three party members at that point they all play differently you've got a string of quests from the refugee camp you've got the story if you want if you go into the bridge to, to find juju or whatever you've got optional monsters you've got optional quests you've got so much stuff you could do and it's all based on like what you want to get out of it you input what you want to get out where so many other games are just kind of like you're on this path there's 
three encounters on the path. Or it might be like um, Color Splash, where it's just like the game tells you what you're supposed to put in your book. You do what it says, and then you go to the next boss and use it. So I guess Color Splash would be one of those games that isn't gamey enough. It's more just, here's a task, go do it. Yeah, just to pull back a bit, like one thing I value in games a lot, and this is one reason why I, you know, lean towards RPGs, is like player agency in terms of what is the player actually contributing to this experience here. And that's what makes games different from like a movie or a show is that there's this interactivity between what you're doing in the game. And I do feel like Final Fantasy VII Remake, obviously there's a combat system and that's what you're doing. But it almost it, it's almost leans close to like that that uncharted effect where there's a lot of scripted sequences where you're kind of on like you go through the paths through these events and you do battle here and there, but you don't really make a lot of like choices. And I don't mean like dialogue, like branching quest type choices. I mean, in terms of like, which monsters do I want to fight? Which equipment do I want to use? There's some of it. What do I want to work on? Yeah. Um, that's actually one reason why I really like Final Fantasy 12 because relatively early in Final Fantasy 12, you can basically, and you were kind of getting at this earlier, like, the the game can shut up for a bit and let you play, like let you play the game. Um, and you can kind of, there's this point early on in Final Fantasy XII where you can go in one direction, but if you wanted to, you can go in the completely other direction and find a lot of cool stuff. Bosses, equipment, loot, uh, quests, tons of stuff to do. And not just like filler content, but like, you know, worthwhile exploration and fighting and loot that makes your party stronger and kind of the, the whole progression element that makes RPGs so fascinating. Um, and I mentioned also, this also ties into what I said before about Final Fantasy VII Remake. Like some people really criticize like, oh, I don't like that that under sector section where before the second reactor because it's just filler content. There's not a lot of story there. Or or the climb the, to uh, Shinra headquarters. Yeah, the lights. Or like the under or the collapsed tunnel way, you know. These are all like um, uh, places where they embellished or like expanded a bit, basically, so they could put in more combat. But like, I don't mind those areas because you actually are like that. That's where the game is a little bit more of a game in terms of what you're doing and playing it. Like, if you if I were like, okay, if you don't like those areas, let's just assume or like let's imagine that they were removed. The game would be even more, or I should maybe I should say the game would be kind of even less of a game if like, like if you went straight from, uh, if you went straight from falling like this is what they had to do if you went straight from meeting Aerith to Wall Market, without like the collapsed tunnelway in there, and I know that tunnelway maybe gets a little bit of flack because it is you know those that arm puzzle or whatever, but oh yeah <laughs> sections like that I don't know there's. This is kind of like the this is what they had to do in order to make it more of a game rather than what the the six hour segment that it was in the original, it, like actually having the player having to do something. I don't know. Yeah, I, I just I don't want my games to be shows. If that's I mean that's what I'm getting at. I don't want it just to be cutscenes and sequences. So I would the agree. With Xenoblade, you can go out into this field and just like you know what what do I want to do? You have you have a choice in what you want to do rather than let me continue with the story and that's the only thing I can do. I, I just do that a lot. I also think that sometimes, like moments like that, they're not 
that they, they can make up a game. So like the first thing that comes to my head is Kingdom Hearts 2 uh, with the Atlantica sections. Like no one likes the Atlantica sections. No one wants to do them, but they're still like a memorable part of the game. They still make up that game. And it's like with the collapse on away with the arm puzzles. Like I hated that, but it's still, you know, it's part of it all, isn't it? That sounds like a very vague uh, comment, but I, I think no, I, know what I, I mean. Well, I I detested the Atlantica stuff in, in um, Kingdom Hearts 2, but I actually liked it in Kingdom Hearts 1 because it changed up how the game felt because you had like that Z-axis, you could swim up or down if I remember right. But even in yeah, Kingdom Hearts 1, so. I guess people didn't people didn't like it, but I liked it. I don't know. That's a bit Kingdom of a Hearts 3 should, Kingdom Hearts 4 should do more like gimmicky worlds. That'd be pretty cool. I'm being, I'm being, I'm being utterly sarcastic. They definitely should. But what I'm getting at is that uh, in this discussion is that the things that Xenoblade, the things that I have the highest affinity for in Xenoblade Definitive Edition based on James and Josh and Adam's description of Cross basically tells me like, hey, you would love this game because you don't place so much emphasis on the narrative and neither does this game. And you do place much more emphasis on like tertiary world building and exploration and and like emergent storytelling and wanderlust. And that's what Cross apparently does so well. And like, I just know I would fall in love with it. So I, I know I have to play it at some point, but I also don't own a Wii U. So I would have to look into other ways. It's a shame Waiting that everyone bought all the Wii U's in the world with how well they sold. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if uh, Adam had any other further comments on uh, Xenoblade Chronicles or George. I kind of feel like that last discussion was a little bit messy, but I just think personally, I just love the gameplay experience of RPGs. Like I love progression systems and things like that, like exploring, getting stronger, not just through EXP, but like the quests you find, like abilities you gain, however they're gained, you know, equipment that makes your character stronger or adds to the capabilities that you have. And Xenoblade does have a little bit of, or a fair bit of that. And so like, those are the things I really attach to. And I want to break one of our older rules. That's one reason why I really, really like Saga Scarlet Grace is because it Watch does basically, yeah, I, I, hey, I, that wasn't that long ago, only like six months or so. But, you know, that that's a game that I actually was in a discussion with another chat about this, how like the most important element to Saga games is that they are games. Like they are very story light and some of them have basically no story at all. But it's all about what you do, what you decide to do, how you construct your parties, how you play the game. You decide where you want to go. And basically, that player agency thing I mentioned earlier, the game is almost like 100% player agency. It's The game never tells you, you're, you're like, there's a cutscene here, and it takes you from here to here, and you have to go here to here to do these things in the, in the order the game describes to you. It's, now nah, you do what you want. <laughs> so I, 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 that's where I, that's where I lean. I, like I would say what? me interrupting then with the comment on bad games making bad games being part of good games probably made that a bit messy, but I think the general point is that gameplay matters a lot more than some games allow it to lately. Like, yeah. Well, and Adam was talking about like getting stronger with progression systems or whatever. One thing that I think both Xenoblade and Final Fantasy VII Remake does well is 
getting stronger by simply there's no better feeling in any game and i'm certain fighting games are even better than at that than this but i don't have a, a leg to stand on there is when you can actually tell that you are understanding the game better that you are getting better at the game and that's something that i think xenoblade does well if you know like which characters can do which things and interlock in which way and it could it could be something as simple as the break topple system or something as simple as if i put these characters in this order i can use their skills in this way and do a chain attack with this order and I know exactly what the best way to do it is. Or Final Fantasy VII Remake, where you're like, I know exactly how to chain Tifa's skills together or how exactly to utilize Cloud along with. Like, that is something where I think if you have a part of the game, whether it's Final Fantasy XII or Xenoblade or Xenoblade Two, where you have a big section where you're just allowed to experiment and learn about it and then implement what you've learned into being better at the game, Final Fantasy VII Remake also does that just by how strong and how how. I took to that combat. That's one of my favorite combat systems ever. Um, as much as I feel like I kind of dragged on it a little bit earlier in this podcast, I love the combat system of Final Fantasy VII Remake and, and learning exactly how to use like Tifa or, oh, I I just absolutely got curb stomped by Leviathan. But if I do this with uh, Barrett and equip this weapon that has a lifesaver ability and then make sure someone has a mana wall able to be cast and or something, like, you know, you you start thinking about how to overcome these challenges and you you learn i i have gotten better at this game and then when you finally beat that leviathan or you beat that unique monster that's five levels higher than you that's that's an, a rewarding experience and that's something i think both those games do well i think one way i reconcile this when i'm thinking about rpgs and um how do i put this we've been sort of talking just like gameplay focused stuff but i actually yeah. when i'm talking about like an rpg i kind of compartmentalize gameplay into like two distinct modes or sections and maybe even more than that like i kind of think about combat differently than i think about like non-combat gameplay and so like when it comes to final fantasy 7 the combat gameplay is really great i've mentioned before that i really really liked it and that's one reason why i didn't mind those embellished turn on the light sections because there's a lot more combat in those sections so that's really cool but in terms of like non-combat gameplay in terms of by non-combat i mean like exploration you know, uh, puzzles, things like that. Uh, what do you do when it's not a storyline element and it's not combat? Like, what are you doing? Like, preparing your characters and things like that. I think Final Fantasy VII Remake is a little bit weaker there because it is, you really can't go anywhere to, to, to any extent outside of what the game allows you to and, like, along the, the story path. Cloud, so that's where I think it's weaker. But the combat, the actual combat that you are doing, I think is really great. So that's kind of how I just vaguely think about RPGs gameplay. What I kind of think of, this is just a mental image in my head, is I think of the gameplay is like a small cog inside of a bigger cog, and the bigger cog is like progression, exploration, or whatever. Um, so basically, the gameplay will turn at one speed, and the and the the, the the combat gameplay will turn at one speed, and then like the progression will turn at another speed. And I feel like for Final Fantasy VII Remake, that combat one is like blistering fast. Like there's always something to be thinking about doing, interacting with there. But then the progression one is just kind of like you go where you're told and you do what you're, you're shown what you're shown. <laughs> where that's something where Xenoblade, I do, I do think, is a stronger game. Uh, but obviously you, you could counteract that by saying like, well, Xenoblade's combat is boring. It's all cooldown based. And you, you maybe you have a point. Maybe you absolutely don't gel with Xenoblade's combat and you think it's terrible. So therefore you have no impetus to just to uh to explore the, the guard plane or whatever because you you hate every moment of doing it. 
Um, I guess, George, you would have the most fresh uh, opinion here. So what do you think of Xenoblade's combat? Be completely honest. Like, because you played Remake and loved it because you even posted that uh, feature on it about how you were a newcomer and you adored it. Uh, you're also a newcomer here. How do you feel about Xenoblade in terms of its combat? Um, it is quite cooldown based, but I still think it's quite satisfying. And I haven't really ever played anything else like it where it's so based on positioning. I wouldn't say I'm very good at it yet. Like, at all, I'm, I, I haven't hit that point where it's like, ah, yeah, that makes sense. But I can kind of tell that I'm getting there because I initially I was kind of annoyed that it felt like every single battle I was doing was always one enemy at a time. So in the early say, I, I hope this kind of, it already has started increasing a bit uh, the further I've got in, but it always felt like, okay, so uh, Shock and Ryan uh, against this this one enemy all the time and I'd have to purposefully select one, attack it, and then select another and attack it to get it. It was more of a group battle. But then uh, now the now that I've got to the Gua Plains, it's kind of having me fight like three or four enemies at once, which I'm enjoying. Um, to quickly compare it to Xenoblade Chronicles 2, the one thing I've noticed is that, I mean, obviously there's a lot of differences in the combat there already, but the thing that I've noticed so far that annoys me the most is that even when you're moving in Xenoblade Chronicles 2, you can't attack. So I found like when I was first playing as Rex, I was like, okay, but I like moving around quite a lot in battle, so I'll move and I'll still attack like you do in the first one. But for some reason, and maybe I'm just being completely oblivious and there's something I should be doing, you can only attack when standing still in the second You one. are absolutely correct. And actually, there's a little, there's a stupid little trick you can do in Xenoblade 2, which is really stupid, but it actually is the best way to like... Yeah, basically, it, it, as it, soon as you it, stop you moving, cancel. he attacks. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. so what you can do to, to, to make it, to basically make Rex attack more often is you just like flick the stick and he like moves like a split, you know, like a foot or whatever, and then he'll swing again. And then you... Move, flick the stick again, he'll move like a step and then he'll swing again. So you basically just keep flicking the stick and basically toggling from movement to non-movement and he'll attack each yeah. time. And it's really dumb. Like I have no That's idea why crazy. this works this way, but you can do this and he'll attack way more often. And that 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 does not exist in the first Xenoblade at all. Your movement does not affect your attack speed. So Which I, I love. like I love that. I love moving around an enemy and I'm still always like even if I'm like okay, I need to move move behind this to to effectively attack. I'm still like de I'm not negating any damage I deal by moving. And in the second one so far, again, only like three or four hours in, it feels like there's not really anything to do with the positioning because I'm always getting attacked because I have to stand still. Um, well, I would say the first one has the better combat and the better world, but I definitely like the characters more in the second one. Like, and I, I, that's probably like gonna piss off everyone in the world, but like Rex well, is just. I think I don't know. I think there are strong arguments to make on both sides. If if basically, I think someone could easily substantiate liking either cast more. Um, without going too much into detail, because maybe we can talk about this on a later podcast. But at a very basic level, I think, um. Xenoblade 1 has better written characters, but Xenoblade 2 has more dynamic characters. They change more from start to finish. Where in Xenoblade, Xenoblade 1, you, once you learn who Donvan is, you know who Donvan is, and he doesn't really change. In Xenoblade 2, there's a lot more, I think, growth. On, on, I'm speaking, obviously, very generally here, but long story short, I don't think there's like a clear 
in my opinion like a clear winner like one's awful and one's superb like one's See, good one's great i don't know whether as someone who's not a part of the community for it i've just missed it but i feel like xenoblade chronicles one had uh obviously operation rainfall and just this big amount of hype for it and that carried on to the the definitive edition it's just regarded as like one of the best rpgs ever and then two when it came out i feel like didn't get as much buzz and then obviously uh xenoblade chronicles x i that that just kind of fell off the radar completely for me yeah the the black sheep like is that just is that just something i've missed have they just like i think you've got the general i think you've got the general gist about like if we can if we can dilute hundreds of, of unique opinions down to like a general consensus i think you kind of hit the nail on the head one is beloved two is well liked with a bunch with a, with vocal detractors and then x is kind of just like sidelined or crossed but, but it shouldn't with, be with vocal it. supporters yeah so how do you guys feel about like in three months i'm just going to come onto this podcast and also talk about xenoblade cross we're going to get people just like sick of it no i i would i'm, I'm enjoying hearing about it like I again, I don't know. It's it's sort of like when I hear Adam talk about Color Splash, like as a game that I know I probably won't get to. I do enjoy like absorbing some opinions on it, uh, and I say I won't get to X because it's gonna take me like at this rate, it's gonna take me forever to get through one and two. Um, so yeah, by all means, we'll be here next week, and George will be like, I finally got my fourth party member or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, also, this is a this is another quick note. Just because I I am very curious about the whole universe in the second one. Why did the the nopon go meh? They they like they make that meh. I I I used I used to know this. Apparently, there's a they have a verbal tick in the Japanese version, but the meh is completely different from what the Japanese were doing. It's it's a localization invention, as far as I know. I mean, I like it, but. They didn't do it in the first one, as far as I'm well, aware. Well, it's actually kind of weird. They don't do it in the first one, or maybe, like, very, very rarely. Um, But then in Future Connected, the Nopon there, the Kino and Nene, they do do the meh thing. So it's just, like, I wonder if it's sort of, like, a flanderization, like... They do it in sort Frost, of too, really... though. Yeah, but, like, the first game, they don't do it as often. I think, I think there might have been, like, one scene where... Ricky goes like meh meh or something, but like it's like not very often at all. And as soon I went basically from main, straight straight from the main game to Future Connected, and when you you immediately run into K- uh, Kino and Nene, and they start doing the normal meh thing that the other games do, like oh I guess we're doing this now. Like it's, it's almost like they just sort of focused and emphasized that more for whatever as, reason. As Sony loves Moogles and the whole Koopo thing, like I don't mind it. It's just it just kind of struck me in the cutscenes for the second one. I was just sat there and I just heard meh 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 and I was like mm, that's... I guess I never really thought of it. Uh, it, does, it also hurts that like the only like two or three Nopon are voiced in Xenoblade uh, 1, right? You got Ricky, you got the Chief. Who else is there? One other last comment I wanted to make about Xenoblade Definitive Edition that I didn't last week that I do appreciate is that I like how well-rounded Shulk is as a main protagonist. Like he has parts of the game where he's like incredibly confident and he knows what he's capable of, but then he also has parts of the game 
where the other characters need to step up and Shulk is not just like this uber paragon of capability that sometimes some JRPG protagonists fall into. Like there's a part fairly early in the game where you're in the uh, ether mine and uh, Shulk has a vision that he's worried that he's going to lose one of the uh, someone basically that he's not able to save him. And during this section of the game, Ryan basically says, and kind of in in no like no sugarcoating, like you're not capable of anything on your own without us. Um, like tell us, and we will help you. And then in that same section of the game, Shulk thinks that he has failed. He saw a vision. He tried to act to save someone, and then he thinks he's failed only for Ryan to come in at the end and bail him out. And that's just like an example of where like, it doesn't allow, I don't like games that just completely like um, flatter you over and over and over. Like, wow, you're so great. Wow. You're the best at this. Wow. You're so awesome. And we wouldn't be anything without you. Um, and when I say you, I just mean the protagonist in this case. And Xenoblade does that to the extent you would expect a protagonist to, but I think it knows when to back off and say like, yeah, you've got a party of, uh, you know, half a dozen capable, cool, interesting people all with their own motivations. And and the, like it's not just a bunch of nobodies plus protagonists, you know? So I actually do like where sh- moments where Shulk doubts himself or moments where he needs to be brought up or like, you know, and, and that might sound really simple, but not, a, not every game does that. No, I agree. It makes it like a more reciprocal. Like Shulk is just you know, part of this group and, you know, he's the Monado wielder. So that makes him special on the protagonist, but he, I guess it avoids that, that Gary stew problem where it's like, you know, self insert characters that are just super cool and super great at everything they could ever possibly set to set out to, to accomplish. And that kind of gets tedious after a while when you have well, a you character also like that last week where when, he, when he's interacting with Melia and like, he says, you're a strong Melia. And she replies, do not mock me. Like they could have easily just been like, I'm not nearly as strong as you, or I think, thank you. Yeah. I love that. I think I mentioned that in the chat, not the podcast, but I love, I love that scene. It's just a quick, it's spoilers. So I don't, I can't really dive into it, but I think there's a lot you can sift out of this, but I won't say it, but there's a scene where Shulk says you're strong Melia. And she immediately replies, do not mock me. And like, I think that gives Melia like basically, you know, some some character agency here, rather than just being like, "Oh, thank you for you know your your kind words or whatever," and just I like I like moments like that. So like I I would like to say that I completely agree with that, um, and I'd love to see this sort of character building with someone like Sora because in like they they do it sort of in Kingdom Hearts one when you go to Atlantica where it's like, oh, like the Keyblade Bearer, like he just caused trouble. But then every single time something like that happens where Sora encounters some sort of like bad vibe, he's always just brought back up straight away. And then in the the me- the, the trailers for Kingdom Hearts 3, they were like, they tease Sora screaming on the ground like something had gone wrong. And I'm like, this is what, like, this is the final one. I really want to see him like struggle with something and actually like, meaningfully struggle like at the start of the game they're like oh he's lost all his power like he's weak and then for the whole of the first world they kind of tease that he's struggling with being weaker and like he's actually like finding it difficult and then it just never comes up again and then towards the end of the game when all the when all the bad stuff happens he's just like he's upset for one scene and then completely back to normal the next like i'd really like to see him 
like struggle, which which sounds bad because it's like I, I'd like to see my favorite character in gaming be be really like sad and depressed, but it's just like it would mean so much more if he built upon that. And well, this this also kind of ties into just the general idea that protagonists should have flaws because the flawless protagonist is boring. Completely, yeah. <laughs> so. And the and the flaw shouldn't be also like a codified strength. Like they say this almost like if you're like applying for a job, like oh, I care too much, or this protagonist is too empathetic <laughs> to the villain. Like that's their flaw. Like come on, give me an actual flaw. Like I love how Shulk. I think maybe maybe I actually did mention this briefly, uh, where he's like, at the beginning of the game, he 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 is more concerned about uh, the Monado than he is about Fiora. Not 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 explicitly, but like Fiora's like, don't you care? I could have died. Uh, yeah, and he 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 knows, and he knows that he knows that the Monado at the, can't hurt humans at that point. But like, he didn't go like, oh, are you okay? I'm so empathetic and I'm so like caring, and you, I have absolutely no like selfish bone in me. Like, no, he yeah he knows what he, what's important. Like, he's a flawed person, and you look at that and say like, oh, that's not very nice, but. I just don't like a game where just like you flatter everyone and everyone flatters you all the time. I just feel like there's no edge to it. Yeah, I agree. Like, I, I like how at the start of the game, they're like, oh, you need to go outside more. Like, stop being in a lab all the time. Like, I, I just like the fact that he's not this paragon of virtue. Like, even though he can wield the Monado, like, he's well, not. There's a few instances yeah. in the game where he's like, he, like, he makes it clear that like his goal is revenge like i want to kill the necon that's my goal i don't yeah he doesn't like overtly state like oh this is for the good of humankind or homkind or whatever he's like no i my goal is to, to is this is a revenge trip that's what this is and he's not shy about it there's also a few times when he basically just says, calls ryan an idiot <laughs> early on but the thing is like shulk is not like a mean person he's just kind of like not to the extent where he's so overly like nice to every absolutely everything like a lot of these flawless protagonists sometimes are well real friends would like butt heads like that so it when when shulk actually like bristles at ryan and says like ryan like how what you moron why did you do that and it's not played off for jokes it's like he's legitimately angry but then they do make up because they're friends and that's what friends do they, they bristle and then they, they they butt heads and then they make up like it's not just like, oh, buddy, oh, oh, Ryan, you joker, you you made everything worse for us. It'll ha ha ha, laugh it off, or whatever. But I don't know. Shulk is a very good protagonist, and replaying through this game, I those are the sorts of things I really enjoy about him. Uh, don't flatter me. I get don't overly flatter me or overly flatter the protagonist. I don't enjoy that. That's my general gist. So uh, you, we mentioned this very briefly, but we, we, the the one new feature on the website this week is an Outer Worlds Switch review. Uh, the general gist, and George, chime in if I'm misrepresenting, but it's a it's still a good game and it's playable on the Switch, but there are some significant drawbacks worse than other ports we've seen. So it's just yeah, kind of I, I would say if you haven't played the outer worlds and the switch is your only method of doing so, then it's still worth it because it's a fantastic game. But if you've got another way of playing it, then I'd probably go for that. As for the news this week, we've got two major topics and then kind of like a bunch of like bit news, like release dates, trailer dates, things like that. So we'll, we'll dive into these two big topics and then we might just rattle off and see kind of where the natural stopping points are. 
when we go into like a bit news. So first of all, this one's kind of a bit of a surprise uh, announcement, initially a leak. Uh, we see that Kingdoms of Amalur Re-Reckoning was listed on the Microsoft Store. That's how it was originally leaked, uh, being published by THQ Nordic. And then they have since basically confirmed it. And then like listings have shown up on Amazon or uh, a few other retailers. So yeah, we've got a uh, remaster on the way for Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning. Has anyone here played the original? I have not. I've played the demo and it was very fable, fable-esque and seemed really good. But I was a, I was a stupid, what, nine, 12 year old probably. So this time I'm going to give it a ever play it, Adam. No, I don't think so. I think I considered playing I, the demo, but I never did. I played the demo because it was an EA published game. Uh, and if you play the demo, you got like an armor from Mass Effect 2. So that's that's my experience with Kingdom of MLR. Though uh, I have played a lot more games in a similar vein since then, uh, like action RPGs and Western RPGs in general. So I think I'm looking forward to this mainly because at the time I was very much like I play Final Fantasy and Kingdom Hearts and Tales games, like JRPG focused, and I've kind of like you know broadened since then. So I'm excited to try this out and give it a a, a real fair shake, though. It is kind of weird, like, I don't even want to try to untangle how this came to be, because even the original game had some of that weird stuff about 38 Studios and Big Huge Games, published by EA. It's got three logos in the box art, then it kind of, like, it got absorbed into that weird amalgamation so, of studio closures. It, it's, 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 it's one of those interesting things. Um, first of all, so first of all, this game... I haven't played it, but it seems to get quite a bit of, I'll say, mild praise. Like, it's it's the only game this 38 Studios ever made. But, so it doesn't have, like, a pedigree, the studio, because that's the only thing they ever did before they died. But, not died, but bankruptcy. <laughs> they, um, but this game seems to get, like, a lot of people like it and say, like, maybe it's not the best RPG ever, but it's solid. Like, it's actually surprisingly well done for what it is. And also considering the story behind it. So that kind of like positive word of mouth, even if it's just mildly positive, it has me interested in trying it. It's like, huh, people like people like this game. And maybe it's just kind of this nice little one-off title that is worth checking out. But as far as I understand it, so there was a studio called Big Huge Games. And this was a THQ studio, the old THQ. And then the old THQ basically began to go bankrupt. Like they had a lot of struggles in the early in the in the early 2010s or so, um, late aughts, and they were actually acquired by a new studio called 38 Studios. Now, 38 Studios um, was basically founded and headed headed by Kurt Schilling, who is a professional baseball player. Uh, and he, I'll just say that Kurt Schilling is not a great guy. He's kind yeah, of I was a gonna say an all around all around kind of again. I'm being facetious again. He actually seems to be a pretty terrible person. Uh, overall but anyways so he just kind of decided i have a ton of money from my baseball career that i want to just dump all this money into a studio in the state of rhode island and 38 was his jersey number which is why they called it 38 studios and they just they wanted to make an mmorpg was like their main goal it was called project copernicus and never got an official title but he hired on um, some staff to make it uh, i think one of them was like the oblivion 
Elder Scrolls Oblivion lead director or designer and a couple other key uh, players like that. But they acquired big, huge games from THQ and basically absorbed them. So that's why both their logos are on the game. And then they, they ended up making this Kingdoms of Amalur game, which is actually meant to be kind of this pre, like this introduction to this new Amalur universe they're creating, which is going to be the setting of this MMORPG. And they spent a lot of money on it, like a, like tons of money on it. And I think there was reports that they needed to sell like three or four million to break even, which is for a new IP, that's a lot to sell for a brand new game um, from a relatively unknown studio, like a new studio. And then the game released and it did pretty well. I think it sold like one million, which is pretty darn good for what it is. Um, but that wasn't the success they needed. And so the the company ended up like asking for they needed loans from the state of Rhode Island, but eventually they all it all fell apart and they it disbanded. And then there was a bunch of legal stuff after that that happened in terms of uh, the assets and who they are bought by. And basically, the joke is, is that Kurt Schilling bankrupted the state of Rhode Island. And I don't know all the details, but kind of this coming full circle thing is that. THQ's developer, Big Huge Games, now THQ Nordic, which has kind of started acquiring a bunch of old THQ properties, now has Kingdom of Amalur, and now they're re-releasing it. So THQ has kind of found themselves in some of these weird full circle things where this new THQ Nordic, which has no direct relationship to the old THQ Nordic, is just sort of acquiring all their stuff. Old THQ or the old Nordic games, you mean? Yeah. Well, THQ Nordic has kind of acquired a bunch of the old THQ stuff. And it's not like the same people at all. It's just like a new person taking the old name and grabbing the old stuff. It's it's just kind of amusing in a way. So that's sort of what Telltale has done then. Yeah. So yeah, it's a very so, uh, weird and interesting story. But the game itself seems pretty good from what I've heard. So we don't have a trailer. We don't have much of anything to go by, except uh, we do have like one neat piece of concept art, uh, like a dozen screenshots. Do we even have like a release window? Let's see. August is. I think it actually has a release oh, date. Was... I think it's August 20th, maybe. It's August 18th. Now, the slightly weird thing is it was leaked on Microsoft Store, and then THQ Nordic confirmed it through Twitter, but they didn't really provide any direct details, like a press release or anything. They just sort of said, yeah, it's happening. And then it started showing up on like Amazon where we like, we got to see like there's a collector's edition and we, that's where we found the price is going to be like $40. So it's not a full price game um, and whatnot. So there, they haven't really, there's no trailer cause they haven't, they, they, they never really had like a, a proper announcement. They just sort of confirmed the, the leak and then listing them up. But does the date given is August 18th. So not too far from now, now a couple of months. It surprised me that no one here has actually played it. Like, I mean, obviously, I missed it too, but I was young, <laughs> and like it was had such good reception that, you know, I, I figured one of you might give it a try. Well, like it was kind of a, a cult classic sort of hit, so limited, uh, I guess, exposure. But then it's kind of had eight or nine years of word of mouth to build up, so people say like, "Oh, I've heard of this game, but I've never played it." I'm guessing there's a lot of people in that boat. So this feels like actually like a really smart decision. Uh, on THQ's part. The only one, the one thing that I have heard about this game is that apparently it gets trivially easy, like really fast. 
So I wonder if they'll do any like balancing in terms of actually like how the game feels to play in terms of difficulty, but we'll see. In the complete other direction, the other major news that we got this week concerning RPGs is about Pokemon Sword and Shield. So we already had some details about the uh, expansion. I guess, I don't know if you call it expansion or just call it two times DLC packs for this year, the Isle of Armor uh, and the uh, Crown Tundra. So most of these details uh, about the Isle of Armor, we had already gotten about Cub Fu and about going to the towers and learning new abilities and some of the new um, uh, Galarian forms. So what this update was, was it gave us a date for Isle of Armor, June 17th. But then they also gave, so that's only like a week and a half away for the first DLC pack for Sword and Shield. But then it also gave us some more details about what's coming with the later, the second of the two updates, the Crown Tundra. But even then, most of the details seem like, it seems like 60-70% of it is what the new Galarian forms are. Like we don't really have much in terms of new mechanics, new areas, new like systems like so the trailer that they gave for this is a three minute trailer and as far as unless there's another one i'm missing there's a three minute trailer without voiceover which is which is different for a pokemon trailer which just kind of shows the new environments the new the new uh the new forms the new regions and then they gave this uh june 17th date and that's kind of it i guess they also talked about some of these uh exclusive moves for like the cub fu forms that are coming in uh the isle of armor as someone from the outside looking in, I, I, I look at this and I'm, I don't really see a whole bunch that's super exciting about it. Not to be a Debbie Downer, but... No, I'm in the same boat. Like, I... I we've talked about Sword and Shield before and I said that I'd started it, got to the wild area, like, enjoyed that, but never find the time, found the time to go back to it. Um, it. It might just be time to accept I'm not a massive Pokemon fan, but even then, like, I can usually recognize, like, good content and, like quality for money and this just doesn't seem like it how, how much are the two packs pokemon shield sword and shield expansion pass which includes the isle of armor and the crown tundra as they release can be purchased for a suggested real retail price of 29.99 each each <laughs> what is that money god damn it all right let me, let me pull up my uh, my, my the switch e-shop in our news post for this i said 30 dollars, but i i thought that was for both of them not each and that would make sense to me because a lot of the Nintendo Switch expansion passes have been, have been. Uh... Oh, actually, I don't think you can buy them separately. So the uh, the Isle of Armor shows up some. Uh... Well, that's the thing about this 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 uh, trailer that's kind of confusing is that they have this trailer which touches on both uh, both parts of the expansion pass, and then they have a press release which talks about a whole bunch of new forms. Like for instance, we already had a Galarian Charizard, I believe. So now there's a Galarian. Uh... When I say Galarian, I mean a Gigantamax, uh, Venusaur, and Blastoise. And then there's the uh, the legendary birds, Articuno, Zapdos, and Moltres. And my understanding is that most of these are Crowd Tundra releases, but I don't think all of them are. And if you poke through the press release, I'm sure you can figure out exactly what's coming when, but I will state it's not... I, th I do think the message is a bit muddled, at the very least, in terms of what's coming when. I think the legendary birds are the crown tundra, the second one, and I think the like, I think the other ones are Isle of Armor. Yeah, so yeah, if I, basically, the Isle of Armor is uh, 
so that's the Isle of Armor is the first set, and that's the set where you basically go to a tower, you meet Cub Fu, you kind of go up the tower, and he turns into Urshifu, and that's like a legendary Pokemon. They they newly announced that there's a Galarian Slowbro in this set, and then there's Gigantamax, Venusaur, and Blastoise in this set. And then for Crown Tundra, that's when they added they added two new legendary Pokemon. Uh, I'm not going to pronounce this right at all. It's like Regilecki and Regidrago. And then the Galarian forms of the three legendary birds. So that's all Count Crown Tundra. But what I just wish what they showed is like, let's say you've already played a bunch of this game and you've got like a really cool team. Like, it's just kind of like go in, capture it. Like what's, again, to kind of pull back the early conversation, what's the game part here? Like, so I can, you, we can kind of envision the tower is going to be a series of battles and some trades and some, you know, maybe more, more, more pared down. But is the tundra going to be like a whole new region? Like, I don't know, badges or, or badge-like structure? Well, here, here's here's a little bit from the uh, press release, which doesn't mean a lot to me, but maybe it does mean a lot to Pokemon players. In the tower, the dojo, on the Isle of Armor, there's something called a Cramomatic, which will combine items and give out a new item in exchange. Trainers can receive a variety of items, including Pokeballs, PP-Ups, and more. So maybe from a mechanical standpoint, that... Cramomatic is a going to be a useful way to get certain items. It, like PP ups are pretty valuable. Um, there's also completely new tutor moves will be available on the Isle of Armor. Traders can have their Pokemon. Oh, I'm guessing that will be a... in exchange for Armorite ore and a substance that can be found on the Isle of Armor through match raid battles and other means. So maybe there are certain tutor moves. Uh, here we go. Actually, Burning Jealousy is a new fire type move that can be taught. With these expansions, it deals damage and burns all opposing Pokemon. And then there's another one called Grassy Glide. And then there's something also, another uh, function called Max Soup. If a Pokemon with with great hidden potential drinks Max Soup, it will become a special Pokemon capable of Gigantamaxing. So there's some stuff like that, which may be worth it. Yeah, I can see how like tutor moves could be like, really important if there's a specific set of moves that like pairs really well with like how a certain pokemon's built i only ever dabbled with quote-unquote endgame pokemon like in emerald so it's been a long time and it's like five generations out of date but it'll be interesting to see like one thing that i that i think sword and shield struggles with is that a lot of this stuff like the gigantamaxing is pretty much tourney banned because it's kind of like too gimmicky and too like unbalanced so they, it's cool for them to like throw out all these neat artworks of all these cool new giant forms of these familiar Pokemon and new Pokemon. I just don't know how much like staying power that has. Like, oh yay, now I can Gigantamax my Venusaur. And how far does that get you? You know what I mean? So at least the tutor moves and the uh, whatever the soup for well even the soup thing just ties directly into the Gigantamax feature. Okay, so, so really for how much uh, how much you know you get out of that specific feature. Okay, for so for the Crown Tundra, which is the second DLC part that comes out like later this fall, it mentions the Galarian Star Tournament. Once trainers progress far enough in their adventure in Crown Tundra, they'll be able to participate in the Galarian Star Tournament. In this tournament, battle, trainers will battle with various characters they met in Pokemon Sword and Shield, but not as opponents. They pick a teammate and tackle the tournament together. It, we don't get much more than that, but maybe that'll be cool. The person I'm looking at who these. reviewed Sword and Shield for us originally, does this excite you at all? Um, I'll be perfectly blunt. I 
after Sword and Shield, it's going to take a lot for me to really be interested in the series going forward. I think that's fair. Not necessarily because Sword and Shield... Okay. There are some things about Sword and Shield that are just outright bad and makes me seriously wonder what's going on in the developers' heads. Specifically, the online functionality in Sword and Shield does not get nearly enough crap for how bad it is. The way that you actually have to be able to trade with uh, your friends or battle with your friends or even queue up for a max raid battle is fundamentally broken and it's embarrassing that it made it to the final game. Not to mention all the other issues I mentioned in my review, but it's just... I don't know. I mean, I used to be a huge Pokemon fan when I was younger, but it just... Ever since the 3DS games, it feels like something's changed with the priorities and how they develop the games and what they want players to to get excited about in the games. And that's perfectly fine, but specifically Sword and Shield, I think it just has too many issues. I really really don't know how to feel about the series going forward. When I look at this from the outside looking in, it just seems like they're putting so many eggs into this Dynamax basket. And I don't know what people really like. Like, that Max Soup goes into that, ties into the Dynamax. Then this Dynamax, like, tournament, or what do they call it? Or Dynamax Adventure, where trainers can team up with three other players to venture into Pokemon dens and encounter Dynamax Pokemon. Uh, And that that ties into the raid battles. And I will say, though, that in the trailer near the end, it shows a bunch of, like, raid battles with Gigantamax forms of uh, legendary Pokemon. And that actually, to try to be a little bit more positive, as an end game feature for a PvE Pokemon game, that actually does sound kind of neat. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, I don't want to seem negative because, like, I know how it is when you're a fan of something, and then, like, even if you're aware of some of the faults, you just hear people constantly like, "Oh, this sucks. This sucks. This sucks." It's just like, it it can be kind of like depressing, but this doesn't seem like great value for money. I mean, thirty for two of them isn't that bad, I guess, but just none of the content seems expansion passy. Oh, I was going to say something completely asinine. I was going to say Galarian Zapdos looks cool as hell. He's a badass. I, I like the idea of the DLC, but when one of my major complaints about the games, and, I'm, and I've seen like plenty of people like echo these complaints, is that they just didn't have enough like actual content in them. The fact that these are separate DLC expansions instead of giving the game another year of development. It definitely rubs me the wrong way and has rubbed some other people the wrong way. I think I'd be a lot more positive about the expansion pass if I was a lot, if I felt like the original games weren't rushed. Personally, I'm just. I'm more indifferent to Pokemon than anything else. So, like, I haven't played... I think I played Diamond and Pearl, like, the first DS versions of those games. And then I just haven't really been interested since. I think I've kind of been at the point where it's like, I've had my fill of Pokemon, and I haven't really seen a reason to jump back yet. But I don't, like, hate it. I just not really... I just indifferent. I don't hate it either. I just think they need to go, like, 
they need to be like right okay let's let's we'll release let's go whatever and have that as a to tide people over but we're going to focus like we're going to do like a really 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 big advanced pokemon like it doesn't have to be like introduce something like dynamax in just like a big new feature it just has to i don't know like wow people again like really bring them in that's vague i, I know that's vague i don't know anything about development but nothing like pokemon sword and shield didn't even really like excite me I, I still bought it but i wasn't there like yeah i can't wait so yeah <laughs> so isle of armor june 17th we can have away we'll see if anyone here dips their toes into that so now we're into the section i kind of pre uh preluded to that it was a bunch of like release dates and bit news and a little bit a few dlc announcements I'll just kind of go in the order we've got listed here. Uh, I think each of us have different experience with each of these. Um, the first one is Outward, which was the uh, indie Western RPG that released early 2019, is getting its Soroborians DLC on June 16th. So this is kind of the uh, adventure survival. It has like stamina-based combat, kind of like Dark Souls. I played the original and reviewed it. I thought it was kind of okay, but... It was almost like Eurojank, only from a Canadian studio. What Outward has going for it is that it's a it's a fully featured RPG that you can play completely in co-op. So I'll probably play through this DLC if I find someone to play it with. Because it's one of those games where it's like on its own. It's not really that remarkable. But in co-op, you co-op elevates everything, basically. So uh, one thing that's interesting about this DLC, and there, there's been a, a few other post-game updates as well since the original release and this DLC release for Outward, that uh, not only is it required, but I think you'd want to start a new game to see like all the new like quality of life features and updates and things like that. So I don't know if maybe, Adam, you were kind of interested in this, I think. Yeah, kind of. But again, like I'd have to find someone to play it with. I don't know if like I could start a new game and you could use your existing character to help me through it, or how does that work? Well, when I originally played this game, it had a few ways that the way the co-op was implemented could kind of trivialize the systems. If, so this is a survival game, which is immediately, well, not a survival game. It has survival elements. So yes, you do have to eat food, drink water. You have to like maintain your temperature. Like if you go into a snowy region, you have to like wear like warm clothing or have food that like numbs your senses. It has some stuff like that that I actually think is really cool in terms of uh, like preparation is rewarded. If you go into a snowy region um, or, or a desert region and you don't go in with the proper armor, let's say you're a heavy character and you wear metal armor. You go into the story, into this uh, hot desert region and immediately like you can't survive in that armor. You got you to gotta equip different stuff. You're going to have a hard time and it's going to feel like unpleasant and you're not going to like it but if you like prepare like the proper consumables and the proper armor set and you go in and you finally you hear you feel it pay off as you have like a breezy time going through there it's it's rewarding in kind of that preparatory sense or preparation sense i don't know if that's a proper adjective but uh that's that's the sort of things i think this game does well but it is also just kind of janky and like the combat doesn't feel super tight uh Oh, I never, I never actually mentioned how it can be trivialized in co-op. So it, since, since it is a survival game, you do have a weight limit. Some people are immediately like, nope, that's not for me. But what you can do is if I'm hosting the game and Adam is joining my game, so like we're the co-op team and our, our, our inventory limit is getting high, what we can do is I can give all my stuff to Adam. 
he can log off, then log onto his file, or he'll start in the home base. He can shove all of his stuff into his treasure chest, then come back and join me. And all of a sudden we bypass the wait limit. So it's got some stuff like that. Or like also like while he's in his own file, he can go shopping. He can like buy stuff and then bring it back to him to my game. So there's a few ways like that that you can kind of trivialize what the intent was. But I don't know. That can be fun in its own right. So yeah, the DLC for Outward coming out uh, in a week and a half. I'm interested. I don't know if we'll get to it right away, but it was a decently good game. Uh, we have a new dev diary for Wasteland 3. Uh, we've had previous ones before that talked about like uh, character customization and things like that. But here's one that's focusing on choice and consequence. Uh, Adam kind of already talked about this in his preview like two months back. So basically, this is kind of the there are a lot of RPG developers have talked about this sort of thing. And so this diary is the kind of thing where Brian Fargo, the studio boss, kind of talks about when they're creating content for a game like this. It's this kind of this balance that they're they they're creating content that they know, like let's just say, fifty percent of players will not see because they have to have so many permutations. So there's like there's like conversations and dialogue scenes and events that happen depending on what path you're on, like depending on what choices you've made. But they understand as they're making all this content to fill out all these permutations and these events that like how many people actually see like a particular piece of content they're working on is going to be small. But that's just kind of the nature of having to make a game that has so many that has quote consequence. So that that's just kind of the thing they have to they have to tackle with is that they have to create all these options for players for for choice to actually have consequence. And they have to be very careful in how they implement it. So that's kind of what they're getting at. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's the only thing is that when I think choice and consequence is like one of those buzzwords that every developer says their game has, or at least every like Western RPG developer. But it's one of those things that you can't you can't really market it. You kind of have to just play it, I think. Like what well, it's, it's one Western of those RPG things... developer goes in saying well, for this specific style of game, like, oh, our choices are not consequential. You know what I mean? Like, everyone says this. Like, how, how many times have I read Choice and Consequence in some sort of, like, marketing material for a game like this? Well, I, I guess the idea is they, they don't want a choice to be, like, a binary choice, but then the content that comes out after it is basically the same anyway because it's they only made basically one dialogue scene and they basically just had, like, a slight change in it. Where in this diary, they talk about how they had to create like completely new scenarios or completely new dialogue scenes. It basically well, saying, if you want to have consequence, you have to do this. Like you, you can't just how you can't just put a different label on like the same scene and say, there's your consequence. They have to actually have to create like completely disparate things. So it's, it's kind of trying to make it actually be consequential. And that's what you have to do in order to do that. Now, obviously, how well do they actually do that? We'll have to wait for the game to find out, but. Uh, that's kind of the that's kind of the 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 issue, right? Is if you want to have consequence, and you want to have things actually like the game that comes to mind is Alpha Protocol. If you want to have a game where it actually feels like your choices actually affected things, that means if you have a choice, that there's going to be different avenues that can happen, and then the developer has to basically account for every single one of those, and hopefully, ideally, make them unique from each other. So. Hopefully they did that. The game I was going to say, you bring up Alpha Protocol. I think if anyone's interested in a game that really feels like it nails this, uh, I would play Tyranny from Obsidian. It's, it's another game that does that really well. 
Until Dawn does it very well as well. Obviously, a very different genre, but a very good game nonetheless. All right, so those are three options for that sort of style of game. <laughs> uh, we we got a couple uh, just like gameplay trailers from Sword Art Online, Alicization, and Fairy Tale. One of them is like for the Sword Art, it's customization and exploration. For Fairy Tale, it's just basically twenty five minutes of raw gameplay. There's really not a whole lot else to say about this. If you're interested in these, these games and you already kind of know you're getting them, or if you're on the fence, just kind of some pure raw gameplay to look at there's really just i don't know if there's much anyone here has to add on to sword art online or fairy tale none no. if kite was here maybe he would say something but just more media to look at if you want to if you're interested in that in those in those titles it's a gus game that's not an atelier yeah um we're getting console releases for the strategy game uh, Banner of the Maid, which is, and this is stating it like without any irony, it's like an anime-fied version of the French Revolution, kind of. Uh, so it's very stylistic. It's kind of interesting. It's a bit skeevy in terms of like outfits and dresses, but it knows that it is, so yeah, whatever. Um, I've actually heard that this game is actually like incredibly meaty. There's someone that I, this is, this is not really a direct, you know, source, but there's someone that I follow on Twitter that was playing the PC release of this game. And they're like, Oh God, this game is so long. Like I'm in chapter 27. Uh, and it's like a tactics, like Final Fantasy tactics style game. Um, it's, I don't know, I guess like if you're into that sort of thing, uh, that those strategy RPGs with a lot of like style to them, it seems like interesting enough. I don't know if it does anything that's new or novel, but I've heard it is quite a quite a uh, investment if you decide to get into it. I don't know if you have anything to add on it based on your uh, news coverage of it, Adam. No. <laughs> We've also got a uh, Western release confirmation for the Idea Factory game uh neptunia virtual stars in the in japan it's called i don't know how to pronounce this vvv tunia it's a neptunia game that that uh focuses on virtual youtubers which is going to be a difficult thing to market in the west because the west is not really on that train as far as i understand in terms of virtual youtubers so that's the entire premise of this neptunia title so again we just kind of put it here in our rapid fire section because if you're into Neptunia games, you might want to keep an eye out on this. If you're not, you're probably already not interested. I don't know if there's really much more to say on this. Uh, I guess it's going to release in 2021. What does it mean by a virtual YouTuber? So it's basically like a anime character that's a YouTuber. Oh, okay. Um, I think Arlo like, only so does, anime. Say, does Arlo count as a virtual YouTuber in the West? <laughs> I think he does, yeah. <laughs> Oh man! It's basically like a character YouTuber, like not a person, but it's a character. But they they've been really popular in Japan. There's literally like forty of them in this game. Oh wow! So yeah. Well, I mean, they had Neptunia games based on like game consoles with that Sega Hard Girls or whatever it was called. Well, so the original Neptunia was a, yeah. Well, the original Neptunia was just a play on the console war. Like, what if? Sony, PlayStation, and Micro, or PlayStation, Nintendo, and Microsoft were actually like anime girls, and you know, so it's just it's always been a little bit tongue in cheek like that. 
but that'll, that'll be coming this west uh, in the west in next year speaking of tactical rpgs uh fell seal arbiters mark which also came out i think early last year in march um is an indie tactical rpg kind of in the vein of final fantasy tactics it's getting an expansion on june 23rd so that's two like indie rpgs that i played like a, a little over a year ago that are getting extra content this year so i guess maybe i'll uh have something to do in mid-june and i'll just pull those up and just see what i feel about those so fell seal arbiters mark kind of is unashamedly copying from final fantasy tactics in the in the way that the uh the classes work how the way that the menus work how you learn the abilities um even like what the what the archetype classes are the only thing about fell seal that i think is a bit of a hurdle for some people to get through is that its art style is not that appealing it looks like a this is going to sound very general, but it looks like a mobile game in terms of like, it's got like a puppetly puppety style animation with overly large heads. Um, that can be a bit get taking getting used to. I heard the game is pretty good, but yeah, the art style is kind of like, do I want to look at this for hours on end? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You get used to it. You acclimate, but, uh, the thing, so this expansion is called missions and monsters coming out on June 23rd. And they've been basically, pretty heavily detailing this throughout the last year on their steam updates so a lot of it focuses on like this monster battling idea in terms of like beast tamers and things like that though they have also added a few like quality of life and end game things to the game i feel like i'm repeating myself with the outward stuff in a few ways because it is kind of similar so again it's a sort of thing where like there not only is there this paid uh is it paid or is it free let me check it's thirteen dollars. Is a is an actual like expansion that they're selling. Okay, so um, I'm interested in this, but I'll, I would probably want to play a new game to see it, to, and to to kind of like gather up all the new impressions from everything they added to it. Uh, I just kind of wish that the uh the game art looked more like the concept art because the concept art that they put out for this missions and monsters is actually like I think really cool and really badass. But then you look at the game and it's like, oh, that's what this actually looks like. It kind of reminds me like those mobile game trailers where like it's not representative of what the actual thing looks like at all. But it's uh, it's a good tactics game if you're if you've played Fire Emblem and you're not interested in something like Brigadine and you want something more like Final Fantasy Tactics esque. Uh, Fell Seal is a uh, a strong contender. So, oh, I guess I actually didn't even, me- even need to mention that this game also is. Uh, when did it come out on consoles? I feel like I'm out of the loop. I thought it came on consoles right around the PC release. It wasn't actually delayed. I think. Oh okay. Oh uh, yeah, it came out. Uh, it came out on PC in April, and it came out. Uh, on switch in august so it's all out in last year but the dlc is hitting june 23rd for all of them so again one of those good not great you know indie games that i think does a lot of a few interesting things but might be more ambitious than uh than it is capable that sounds like i'm stating it a bit bluntly but you kind of have to know what what territory this game was i think made by primarily two people so it's ambitious in in its own right just on that front so uh, and then the last thing we have on here is uh, Necromunda Underhive Wars, which is a Warhammer 40k game, which I don't know anything about, uh, launching for PlayStation, Xbox, and PC this summer. And we got a story trailer for that. I don't know if anyone here knows anything about Warhammer. This is this is a uh, Seed House's uh, 
this is his yeah, Alex, this is something Alex knows more about than any of us. And if you know Warhammer 40k, you probably know what Necromunda means just inherently. I guess from what I can tell, it's like one of the main worlds in this universe. And so like this game is a tactical game kind of focusing on this world and their politics. And it's it's sort of like from from what you can tell in the trailer, kind of like a like uh survival of the fittest sort of deal where it's like the people in power are the people who like can earn and keep that power through through uh strength or capability and so like this apparently there are clans that this game kind of focuses around that you're you're trying to fight for your clan and there's even pvp modes um but it is a tactical rpg um there i when, when we posted about it there were some warhammer fans that seemed interested in it but it seems like if you're not into Warhammer, this game probably means nothing to you, which unfortunately I think all of us fall, lie in, uh, fall in that group. But that's what it is. It's a Warhammer-based strategy we'll have game. To, uh, we'll have to recruit CD to play it for us and then come in here and tell us about it. Just as a side, did anyone play that uh, Warhammer Space Marine that came out years and years ago? Because that was supposed to be really good. I get them mixed up. I think CD ended up playing Chaos Bane. But that might have been not Warhammer 40k, but the the other Warhammer. I get them like there's like Warhammer Future and then Warhammer Past or whatever, and I don't really know exactly how they all work. But he he played Chaos Bane, which I think was came out last year. But so I kind of get all the Warhammer games mixed up, which is which and when they came out. And that covers kind of all that bit news. So uh, actually, two pieces of the Outward and the uh, Felseal, I think, are interesting for me. And then obviously, we've got the JRPG front, the Sword Art Online, the Fairy Tale, the Idea Factory. So a couple of new trailers, a couple of release windows being identified. Uh, but yeah, as we started with this podcast, a bunch of the heavy hitters are kind of just postponed uh, to, to next week or the week after. We'll have to see when those things finally land. But assuming there are no other further changes, which is obviously not a safe, safe assumption at all, it's possible that we could have quite a CD kind of, or not CD, James kind of posted in our staff chat that the podcast is going to become a zoo when these things land because there's so much stuff that it feels like we're right on the right on the lip of some crazy things. So we're kind of like we're, we're rubber bands that are pulled to our brink about to snap in terms of all these things coming right, you know, barreling at us like a freight train. So this is the best time in gaming. I, I love the sort of pre new season where everyone's like, Ooh, rumors and leaks and fake leaks, but it's all like exciting. And you just want to, oh, yeah. just want to talk about games 24 seven. There's a lot of murmurs about demon souls. Harry Potter RPG. Anything about it. <laughs> okay. You find, you got your chance to, to, to chime in your Harry yes. Potter. Uh, for this cast there you go so next week could be a zoo we'll see uh but until then you can always find us at rpgsite.net you can find us on our twitter page at rpg site you do still have if anyone's listening to this like the moment it goes up you might have a, f a tiny window to tweet for uh um that xenoblade chronicle definitive works yeah, yeah, Definitive Works uh, uh, Collector's Edition for the Xenoblade Definitive Edition. Uh, you, I stated it poorly. You just have to follow and like to get a... Uh, is it follow and follow like? And or retweet. retweet? Myself. Um, you have a chance to win that if you do that. You have one in 6,000 chance. Uh, you can always find us on our YouTube page at rpgsite.net or our Facebook at uh, rpgsite.net. 
you can find us at our Discord that we tweet out every once in a while. We're trying to get it a link to our homepage to let, to, to connect to our Discord, but it's not quite there yet. But as always, uh, we'll be here next week with hopefully a whole bunch of new things to talk about, and we will see you then. Take care. Bye, everyone.